You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association. Hello, my name is Tommy Boland, Agricultural Science Association President. I would like to welcome you all to the latest episode in our podcast series, Experts in Their Field. I'm delighted that our guest this week is a long-term supporter of the Agricultural Science Association and former Agricultural Science Association President, Jimmy Brett of Brett Brothers. Jimmy is interviewed by his former colleague and old friend, Michael Miley, himself our former ASA president. We hear of Jimmy's early life growing up in County Kilkenny, his early career and agricultural science education before returning home to take control and develop the family business. We also hear how the next generation of the Brett family have moved into the business and also a little bit about Jimmy's life outside of business, which involves local politics. At this stage, I would like to thank Jimmy for his contribution and continued support of the Agricultural Science Association, and to wish himself, his wife Frances, and the wider Brett family continued health and success. Hello everyone, Uh, my name is Michael Miley, and I'm honoured that the A has asked me to conduct this podcast with Jimmy Brett, someone I have known for much longer than I care to remember. Jimmy, you're very welcome. Uh, You were reared in Wine Gap in Kilkenny, and your home is still in Wine Gap. In fact, I think your house is less than 100 metres from the house you uh, grew up in. So uh, talk to me about the early years in Jimmy Brett's life. Yeah, well, thanks, Michael. I'm delighted to be here Um, Look, yes, Wine Gap is a very rural part of Kilkenny, of course, and um, we, I was brought up on a small, smallish farm in Kilkenny. You know, we had dairy cows, and we had cattle and hay and everything, and it was the time when there were no bales or anything else. I'm going to sound very old now, but that's the reality, isn't it? And, uh, you know, Wine Gap, I went to school, Wine Gap National School, walked to school, uh, never got a lift or anything, hail, rain or snow, you just walked. Uh, it was a great school, uh, I must say, and got a great education there. Great sense of community. You know, GA very big in Wine Gap, played hurling with the school and with the underage teams and everything over the years. So that, that's very much my, my origins. I only went back there 70, 18 years ago, actually, having lived in Dublin and having lived near Kilkenny City. So we went right. back, Francis and myself went back and built a house on the farm. And then secondary school... You went by bike, did you, to Callan? Yeah, indeed, yeah. Callan CBS, the Callan birthplace of Edmund Ignatius Rice, of course, the founder of the Christian Brothers. So, yeah, I did my secondary education there for five years. Um, again, like a good school, you know, it was boys only, of course. It wasn't co-ed. Primary school was co-ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBS was boys only. So, uh, you know, the, the, the exposure to social activities was rather limited, but the... Right. The core curriculum was very well attended to by the school, I must say, and we got a good education, yeah. And then you decided to do agricultural science. Was that the plan always, or did it just happen? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure, really. I, I, I was a little bit more interested in finance and marketing and all of that end. And I remember my father saying to me, you know, I think you should go and study agricultural science and it will stand to you in the future if you do get involved in the business. Uh, and, you know, I thought about it and uh, considered it and decided, yes, I would follow, go to UCD and join the access, uh, faculty, and that's, uh, that's where I was, yeah. And in between, uh, you spent a while in Kildalton College, did you? 
learning to be, learning a little bit about practical agriculture? Yeah, well, I didn't learn much about it in UCD, so I suppose we had to learn it someplace. So, um, yeah, in, in those days, Professor Ruan, J.B. Ruan, of course, did a, a midterm review on you after year two, as you know, in, in UCD. And uh, he, he decided I, I needed to sharpen up on my practical knowledge of agriculture. And he sentenced me to three months in uh, Lyons Estate for the summer. But uh, I'm afraid I had already uh, got clearance on my J-1 visa and I had booked a flight to New York. So nothing was going to stop me. I said, I'm going to New York to hell with the, the, three, the three months and ended up, of course, doing the full year then in Kildalton College, which actually was an excellent year, I have to say, from a, a really practical you know, appreciation of agriculture. It was good. It was good. And then back to UCD for a third year and final year. And I think you, uh, you were elected or anointed uh, auditor of the Ag Science Society, oh, I was now called AgSoc. Oh, I was elected, Miley. I had to stand for election and uh, I had competition, so, but got elected, yes. <laughs> My first foray into politics. And uh, we'll talk a bit about your, your later career in politics uh, later on. I actually, Kildalton College uh, did a lot of good for me, really, because I, I met my wife when I was down in Kildalton College. Oh, Francis. she's from the, from she's the village, from of Pilltown. village of Pilltown. Yeah, and uh, we first met on, on a, a rather wild night in the pub down there. That we, we, we became very friendly, I must say, and uh, we've been together ever since. And the rest is history, as they say. And then after graduating, you... Uh, did you intend to go straight back to the family business or, or what was your intention when you graduated out of, from UCD? I didn't intend to go back, no, but my, my, my family certainly, that was the expectation, you know, that I would go back. Uh, I wasn't ready for it. Uh, I was, I loved it. I was always attracted to the prospect of radio and television, I have to say. You know, I remember watching Brian Farr and, and people like that on TV and I thought, that's the kind of job I'd love to do. And uh, when the position was advertised in, in the department, which you were heading up, of course, in radio yeah. at that time, and Joe Murray was the, the overall head of agriculture mm -hmm. in, in uh, Radio RTE, I applied for the position and did a, interviews and I was offered the job, provided I got the final exam, which in those days, the final exam was in September. And I, I was offered the job in June, I believe it was, but with the proviso, you, you got to get your degree, which happened anyway. You know, we got through that and um, started, I think, in September then, wasn't it, uh, with yourself? And right. we, had a, we had a wild five years, I have to say, which I enjoyed. It was, it was one of the best times of my life. And I loved every minute of it. We, I think we worked, we worked very hard, which a lot of people might yeah. think happens in RTE, yeah. but uh, we worked. We had a, a huge output for for two producers and radio presenters. And uh, I, I look back very fondly on it, actually. It was a really changed time in my life, you know, coming out of college and landing into the, the, the epicenter of the media world was, was a wonderful experience. Got to know so many people in the Department of Agriculture, IFA, all of the organizations, businesses and everything else. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy that. And of course, you worked with a number of luminaries, one of them, of course, being Michael Dillon, whom older listeners will remember Indeed. very well. What a dying, Michael Dillon. What a man. What a lovely man. Uh, Michael, was, Michael was a wonderful character, wasn't he, to work with, you know. Uh, when, when we were doing Farm Diary, if you remember, it was come on at 20 past six. And what, what younger people mightn't realise, you know, 
RT Radio was the only real show. It was the only national station mm. and the only competition was from some pirates around sure. the country. And of course, Farm Diary was a daily 10-minute yeah, agri-news programme. Before the, the news, the main news was half six, so we came on right. at 20 past six. So we had a million people yeah. listening every day, which was, was great. So we got yeah. our message across. But my, my, Michael would do the cattle market report. We had done our news bulletin between 20 past and 25 or six minutes. Yeah. He was trying to sneak a minute off Michael, but you wouldn't, he wouldn't accept, you know. Michael fought hard to get his, his time, and yeah. he, was, he was a wonderful mm. professional, yeah. Great man to work with. And uh, others such as, of course, Matt Dempsey. Matt. Brendan Carney used to do a bit with us from time to That's time. Right. John Dardis. Yeah, yeah. And the great Peter Murphy, of course. Oh, Peter, yeah. Peter, got it, yeah. Peter Farm, uh, the, the Country Call on Sundays. Peter was the presenter. I actually produced that for a good few years at the end of my, my time there. And, uh, I mean, Peter was the consummate professional, you know. He... he, he uh, Peter would, you'd, you'd give him a script and you'd dictate it and Peter would write it in this crazy mm -hmm. long handwriting that yeah. nobody could ever read. Right, and yeah. he would flick the page off when he'd finished it onto the floor. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but I, th I think, you know, what I, what I think proudly back on our time, because our time really in radio, I think we really, I think we had an overriding philosophy of the truth. You know, we weren't aligned to any organisations or any businesses or anything else or sponsors we, you know, our our culture was to find the news and give the news straight, right? Yeah. Which which wasn't always pleasing and of course for it everybody. Was a, it was a very exciting time. I mean, Phenomenal, yeah. Phenomenal. Soon after EEC entry, yeah. the money was flowing into yeah. farming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right, 1973, we joined the EU. I joined RT in 75. You were there since 72, I think. Yeah. So, like, you know, it was a vibrant time. There was a lot of money. Uh, I mean, remember the great scrambles in Brussels for the price fixing? Uh, when the minister went out, and we, 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 and you know, people now, younger people particularly, won't even have memory or remember this. But um, the big gig every March was what level of price increase the minister would come home with. Yes. I remember Mark Lint, the minister, Lord Mercy and Mark, a fine, a fine man, and uh, the, it was Paddy Lane, the president, I think, of IFA, and they'd set the agenda that they needed a twenty-one, yes, was, a twenty-one percent price increase. Uh, from, from Brussels and Mark Clinton went out, negotiated a devaluation of the green pound and came back as proud as punch with his 19% of price increase. And I went to the airport to do the, the, the interview with the minister and I said, but the IFA expects you to get... I can't tell what, what his response was, but he wasn't happy. You know, he, he'd done this wonderful job to get 19%. But, th I mean, those were the kind of price increases that were there, if you remember, driven primarily by a devaluation of the green pound at that time. Absolutely. And uh, then, of course, the money, the, the gravy train stopped soon afterwards, didn't it? Around the time you left RTA. Yeah, yeah. T times changed, I suppose, and people started talking about reforming the cap. You know, it was, I suppose, a bit of a gravy train in the early days, in fairness. Intervention was there, mm. and people didn't have to worry too much about markets or marketing. Just pile, pile the meat and the milk powder into mm. on ships, if you remember. The ships around the coast yeah. of Europe were full. Uh, it created a big political backlash because, you know, the concept of a, a wealthy community storing food for almost indefinitely and half the world starving at the time became a big political issue. Reform of the cap became a big issue. And I think probably the reform essentially went in the right direction in distributing the funds more directly to the farmer than through industry. Industry, absolutely. You know, you had, remember the MCAs you had on exports and the taxes yeah. on MCAs going up to the north and you had all the that barley on the carousel going up, mm -hmm. 
and collecting an MCA and coming down in on approved road and going back up again. You know, that happened at the time. And, it, yeah. you know, let's face it, it wasn't, it wasn't the right structure. And I think, you know, even though everybody, we were all challenged by the reforms that were coming at the time, but I think they worked out for the better, ultimately, of far, farmers, individual farmers. And, of course, uh, during your period there, you had the distinction of single-handedly broadcasting uh, the, uh, a, a budget uh, from live from the Dáil into the RTE studios. Yeah, it, it, it was an intimidating experience, which I loved and enjoyed. Uh, but if you remember, there was, there was a dispute in RTE. It was an inter-union dispute. And uh, only the, that, the previous night I was approached and you were approached, so would, we, would we do it? And I, I was given the job to go in and anchor the actual presentation of the budget to the listeners of RTE. Uh, and it came out to me page by page as Mr. George Colley was presenting it. And uh, I had to try and pick out the, the key points uh, with limited knowledge of economics at that time. But we got through it and you, you did the studio uh, I, I presentation. Had the, I, I had the easy time with uh, a man called Morris Manning, right, a Morris. distinguished professor in UCD. We just had to ask innocent questions off a panel uh, <laughs> in the studio. And, uh, and you also broadcast, uh, I think, live uh, from the Rat Mines Town Hall. The results of an election, if I remember. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was putting one's toe into the, the other aspects of, of broadcasting in RT because we, you know, we majored obviously in agriculture and food and the politics of that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I would love to have done more broadcasting outside of agriculture, but my, my life changed course uh, at that stage. And I, did you reluctantly go back to the, at that point to the family business or did the, did the pressure become too much for you from your father and others? <laughs> I I didn't reluctantly uh, go back, but but it was it was you know with some sadness and disappointment that I left the mainstream media at that time. Although I did work for a while uh, with the business and finance offshoot, if you remember the Farmer magazine, uh, I, I was assistant editor of that and did it part time and did some broadcasting with already part time mm -hmm. while I was working. But no, I I went back. It it was always my long term objective. Maybe I would like to have delayed it a couple of years, but we had just made a major family investment in a new mill in Callan, County Kenny, and you know my destiny and my 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 duty was to go back and uh, essentially take over that aspect of the business. Now Brett's of course has an intriguing and impressive uh, history going back over what more than eighty years. Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, like, like a lot of businesses, I suppose, Michael started very small. Uh, I, I think you have to go back to the 30s. Uh, and interestingly, my father, Jack, Jack Brett, uh, in, intended going to America. In fact, he was very set on going to America in the late 30s. And in 1939, just before the war, my grandmother, Granny Brett, his, his mother persuaded him not to go, to stay. And thankfully, he didn't go <laughs> and he stayed. Uh, and um, one of the first businesses he got in, well, actually, he, the first thing he did was he got a, a hackney license, a public service uh, license, which proved to be quite a significant investment for him because during the war, when, when uh, fuel was all limited and unavailable and rationed, he had priority access with his public service uh, license, yeah. you know. But they, they got very involved in exporting rabbits to Britain. The war was on, the, the meat and the good quality meat was going to the forces in Europe, 
World War Two, there was a scarcity of protein, and uh, Jack Brett and his brothers were collected up rabbits in Wexford, Waterford, Kilkenny, Tipperary, and Carlow, and exported them to England. So that was the first time we were involved right. in meat. Really, I wasn't obviously just way before I was ever born, yeah. and uh, from that. Uh, a merchanting business developed in the wine gap, in wine gap from the premises in wine gap uh, you know um, selling fertilizers selling feedstuffs uh, and other farm inputs built a grain store they did and put up a dryer my father got a, a contract from water flour mills to assemble uh, milling wheat which was a, a really big money spinner for farmers at the time and it kind of projected the the old company into the grain sector you know because it was a very valuable contract to have mm. and at the time when we had flour milling in ireland which we don't have anymore and we grew copious quantities of milling wheat spring wheat all replaced subsequently with feed wheat just for animal feed you know but that was a very important part of the business and that business you know my my father and his his two his older brother were the main drivers with my grandmother for a while and the other two Michael and Patty got very involved in the farming side of the business and you know, they acquired some land over that period and extended that. So the, the farm ran side by side with the business. You the know. business. And of course you were never, Brett's were never short of competition. Now talk to me about the challenges facing a family business. Yeah, well, look, every business obviously faces challenges, you know, but um, I mean the, the development, the evolution of the new cooperative structures in in Glanby, Avonmore as it was, and Derrygold, you know, are, there's a lot of loyalty among shareholders, obviously. So, you know, when you're a private business, you don't have that, that shareholder loyalty, obviously. So, right. you know, you've got to offer something different. You've got to be better than them, really, you know. Right. You've got to offer value and you've got to offer service. And that's, that's the kind of model that we, we worked on very, very much so. When the mill developed in Callan, I went in and, and I took over that initially and I became managing director of the company in the late 80s. Uh, my father moved up to chairmanship and uh, it, that was a big challenge we had no tons starting out we had we had 2,000 tons of feed from an old mill in Wainga per annum mm. and our grain intake was around 10,000 tons at that time so you know it was it was a good solid business but modest right. modest in size and my function was to grow that and to grow it as quickly as possible and um, and in the process, of course, you moved into pig production. Yes, we did. Not yes. a business for the fair market. <laughs> no, no. A, I don't think it was ever as difficult as 2002, and indeed at the moment. Uh, but we, we acquired Sundown Pig Farm in North Kilkenny in 1989. Uh, it had run into some difficulties, and we acquired it from, from a liquidator, actually, at that time. But it proved to be a very good investment over the years, uh, as you're right, not for the faint-hearted. And let me say, at this stage, I've... I don't think I have as much admiration for anybody as the pig farmers of Ireland. You know, they've had no real financial support from Europe, no, no special arrangements on, on intervention or anything like that. You know, they, they have had to work in the free market from the beginning. Now, of course, it has consolidated greatly in the interim, and the old small pig farm doesn't really have a future at this point in time. There's a lot of corporate entities, but they're wonderful people who run pig farms. They've just come through a, a shocking, difficult period, as you know. I think, Michael, in the last 14 months have right. been very, very bad. Like They've been loss-making period, uh, even though pig prices are at an all-time high at the moment. But, of course, they were caught with the, the, the tailwind of commodity price increases. Grain, right. soya, everything exploded during right. that time for a lot of reasons. And uh, pig feed is expensive. Okay. And even though pig prices are good, uh, the margin 
has been negative for some time. So yes, we moved in at that stage, and um, it's 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 a it's a good partner for the mill. Obviously, yeah. you know, it's a big consumer of grain, a big consumer yeah. of uh, of animal feed, yeah. and that knitted in nicely with that. How I was was it this? Your own pig production business was was it that that became the was the catalyst for you getting involved in in bacon and pork processing? Yeah, I have to say, you know, when I went down, my my philosophy always was that we needed to move the business up the food chain nearer to the consumer. Right? Uh, you know, great, we deal with farmers, and that's great. We buy their grain from them. But I figured, you know, we could add serious value to that. I didn't see a future in it, you know. I mean, grain merchandise is not for the faint-hearted either, as people who are in it at the moment will realise yeah. with the way grain prices have gone since the harvest. But how, much, how many how many tons of grain do you buy every year? Well, well, at that stage, we were way back. We were doing around nine or ten thousand tons. But we we do between seventeen and eighty thousand tons of native grain at harvest time, and we dry all that and we harvest it and we we process it into animal feed. And our mill does one hundred fifty thousand ton of feed. And I would claim we have a unique place in that food chain in that right now 45% of the ingredients of our feeds are Irish-grown barley, wheat, oats, beans. You know, so that's, that's a pretty big commitment to our, our, our grain sector. But you know, our, our, I, we've, we've developed a business around what I would describe I suppose, as, as, as um, a serviced service to farmers in that you know, we have an agronomy service, it's fine professional mm-hmm. young people who are agronomists out there in the field advising the farmers. We have a fine nutritional service on our uh, feed side. And you know, like we, we have, as, said at the be- as you asked me earlier about competition, you know, we, that's all we have. We have, we, we, we have to be competitive, we have to have quality, we have to service. And if you don't have these, you don't survive. Now, getting back to the food business then, your food processing business, what's called Oak Park Foods, is it? Based in where? Correct, yeah, Oak Park. Uh, uh, Oak Park came into our, our family uh, involvement in the early part of the 1990s. Uh, and what I, do you do I, at Oak Park? Okay, well, just the background to it was um, the Burke's Bacon in Clonmel was a famous old brand of bacon products, which most people in South East would have been aware of. At the, Avon Moore at the time bought it and closed it. And the management uh, of Burke's set up a small bacon opportunity operation in in care and um, they needed an investor you know and uh, we went in on a 50 50 joint venture with them for a few years and then bought bought out the the old shareholders so that's the origins of it yes it knitted of course with our own pig farm i could see here was now an opportunity to add value to grain in the pig farm add value to pigs in the processing plant so Oak Park is now, yeah, a very successful company run by my two sons. David is the MD and John is the sales director. And uh, we're, we now have uh, a footprint in right, in right across Great Britain, Ireland, all of Ireland and some of Europe. And um, even in the Arab world, we're in the United Arab Emirates now as well. Wow, that's and impressive. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it, it is. It was, you know, we, um, we leveraged the business around two major supermarket groups, Aldi and Lidl who are phenomenal customers and great people to deal with, they specialise in what we call private label. They won't right. sell anybody's label other than their own label. Yeah. And we certainly you know, built up the, the tonnage, as it were, through the factory with the assistance of Aldi. And they're still our 
loyal partners. I mean, you know, our philosophy is very much partnership. Partnership, you know, whether it's a grain farmer, whether it's a cereal, a cereal farmer, or whether it's a pig farmer, or whether it's, it's a supermarket. You, know, you have to have this understanding that you won't let them down, they won't let you down, provided you, you reach the quality standards, the delivery schedules, and everything else. And that's where it all comes together. And uh, that food business is very much built around partnerships. We are uh, that private label business is that's manufacturing and selling okay. the supermarket yeah. brand. We're also developing our own Oak Park brand okay. uh, fairly substantially uh, with some of the other supermarkets, in particular Dunn, Super Value, Tesco in Ireland. We we have very strong partnership relationships now with um, with some of the English comp- uh, supermarkets, uh, Waitrose. Um, Sainsbury's and Morrison's. Wow. So our Oak Park brand is available in supermarkets in and London, Brexit, London to Newcastle. Is Brexit having any impact on your UK business? We were very worried about it pre Brexit. Obviously, you know, with all of the challenges coming down on on entry requirements and entry restri- entry restrictions, my last spend a year and a half over and back meeting uh, the British um, customs people meeting the supermarkets actually over there business people didn't want to talk about Brexit before it happened and even after the vote they were reluctant to engage but we we, we depended we needed the business so we set up a whole process for them and for ourselves that we could work within the system there was nothing stopping us provided you did all your paperwork did all your accreditations with our majesty's Customs and excise with the Irish customs and excise, and you know it's quite seamless now. It works well. Good. Now, another string to your bow, of course, has been your involvement in local politics. Uh, you were elected a member of Kilkenny County Council. I was. <laughs> for, Tell me a bit for about my that. sins. Yeah, yeah. I did. I dabbled in politics. Uh, I was elected in 80, 1985 to Kilkenny County Council. Uh, why? Uh, I suppose I was always attracted to politics. We're a political family, really. Uh, it's only when I went back to live down in Kilkenny that I really took any interest in politics myself. Uh, I enjoyed politics, you know. Uh, it can be frustrating. It can be exciting. Uh, and of but, course, but you, you were becoming from the, the Fianna Fáil gene pool, mm-hmm. as they say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And... Um, in, you know, in my career, I had to deal with quite a few people from other gene pools. You know, which you'll be familiar with, Michael. Yeah. But uh, no, um, I have to say, uh, politics. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. I was chairman of the council uh, for the millennium in 1999, and I I enjoyed that. I got involved in the regional authority as well, and I found that very productive, very very productive. Yeah. I remember when the National Roads Authority uh, decided they were putting the motorway from Waterford to Dublin, for example. They decided in their wisdom, God help us, that the road would run from Waterford to New Ross to Arklow to Dublin. And I took a huge, I started a huge uh, uh, campaign to get it up through the centre, through Kilkenny, Carlow. And I, I got um, a parchment drawn up with the logos of all the local authorities in the region. And I spent a weekend driving around to them all, asking the chairman and the mayors to sign it, that we wanted it to go up through the centre. Right. And I went up to Bertie Hearn's Taoiseach and I made the case to him, and we got it, we got it, and it was actually, uh, probably the, I'm not claiming full credit now, don't get me wrong, yeah. but I had a role in it, it was probably the biggest economic decision for a region that was ever made, right. really, yeah. you know, this motorway is phenomenal from, like all the motorways in Ireland, if you're left out of it, you're left in isolation, yeah. you know, so yeah. that, that, those are the kind of things, you know, and, you know, a lot of politics is basic, 
you know, you're, you are an interpreter between the system and, and the citizen. And very often the citizen in Ireland is left hanging out there, uh-huh. as we know, you know, for a lot of the stuff they're entitled to. Was it very time-consuming? For a man um, yeah. busy running his own family business. Yeah, it was. I suppose I, I, I I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm pretty strict timekeeper. You know, I, I don't waste time, and I would only go to a meeting that was going to be productive. I, w- I wouldn't be going to meetings day and night and that. You know, but I would involve in things that mattered and really mattered, and I probably didn't involve myself as much as others right, would have. Yeah. You know. Were you ever tempted to tip your toe in? National politics. I uh, I certainly was interested. Yes, I was. I was. Uh, I had a great dilemma about it because, you know, as managing director of the bread company, which had become a group after that stage, uh, you know, we employ we employ three hundred people now, two hundred and seventy, two hundred and eighty direct, and at least another thirty of thirty people indirect who are full time um, hauliers, you know, and right. service people yeah. and that. So it was it was a dilemma for me. I was attracted, yes, I won't deny it, I was attracted to politics and did dabble in it a little bit and did look like I might go forward, but it didn't work out, thankfully, when I was under some pressure from people at national level to enter the, the arena back uh, in the 87 election. But um, that didn't work out at convention. I didn't really, I didn't really uh, put an effort into it, to be honest with you. I wasn't ready for it. Right. And... Um, Maybe, you know, if it was 20 years later and my sons were old and they were coming into the business, I might have considered it. But I had the opportunity to go in uh, 97, that election. I was offered the nomination, actually, by the party. And uh, there were a few of us in Kilkenny who were in contention and we agreed, if we could agree among ourselves, um, that person would go. And I I had that opportunity and it was mine. But... um, Actually, very interesting. I remember being over in Rome for the beatification of Edmund Ignatius Rice. I was there as a representative for the Callan area, yeah. and some other people were there, John McGuinness and others, and uh, we were in the Irish Embassy, and I called John over, and I said, John, I've decided I'm not going. You, right. If you're going, I'll support you. So right. it came as a big shock to John, but that was the beginning right. of his run in national politics. Right. It was kind of one or other of us at, at that stage, I think. Okay. You know. And moving on a bit then, you... You also served on the uh, the board of Chagas for what ten years was it? Two terms, Michael. Yeah, which was a very interesting experience, and you you had a role there yourself for some of that time. I know. Yeah. Uh, it, the nitrates issue was there at the time, and that was that was a rather difficult period. I I found it uh, interesting from my own perspective. Yeah, I did. I I chaired the audit committee for a period, and uh, we did some very useful work. I think in uh, coming from the private sector, having worked in the public sector in RT. And then going into senior management in the private sector and going on the board of a public um, national body, uh, government body, was challenging. You know, the ethos and the culture is different. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But as chairman of the audit committee, I would hope I would have brought some value there. Uh, But I enjoyed it. It was good. Some great people in Chagosk, as you Mm -hmm. know, uh, some great scientists and people with great commitment. And, um, yeah, I wish them well. Two terms, though, I think is enough to have anybody on the board. And getting talked about Chagas and agricultural graduates, many of whom uh, work in Chagas, what are your views now on the on the quality of the graduates coming out today versus the quality of the likes of Jimmy Brett? Um, so many, without being ages, a number of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, 
that's kind of an unfair comparison for them, really, you know, to compare them to me. You know. Different times. <laughs> Different times. Uh, I, I think there's some really good young graduates. I love young people, Michael. I love young people who come into the business. Uh, we've attracted some incredible talent. Um, I, I won't make a generalised comment because I don't think I'm qualified. I haven't met enough of them, but any of them I've employed have been fantastic. The women are incredible. Women graduates, I find incredible their their adaptability, their knowledge, and their general networking and all is quite quite impressive. Now I have to say, so the the, the young lads as well. Uh, look, it's all down to attitude here. At the end of the day, you know, I mean, you come out of college with your education, you have your BAGR or your masters or whatever, uh, but what are you going to do with it, and how how are you going to use it? I regard education as merely an access to information. Quite frankly, what do you really know? coming out of college you know you have no experience really right. so I think it's the people who and I find a lot with this with a lot of these young graduates this is their attitude they want to find out everything they want to be involved and they're prepared to make decisions which is good absolutely you know and uh, as somebody who is obviously dealing with farmers and many commercial farmers on, on a day-to-day basis are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of farming considering all the challenges facing uh, the agricultural sector at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I won't take a, a kind of a, a choice in that binary option, mm. either optimistic or pessimistic. Uh, I'm always op- an optimist, you know, and I think there's a good future for farming. But for how many people and how is it going to work out? I'm very concerned, certainly, yes, of course I am, about the whole um, emphasis on the environmental controls in particular. Now, look, I'm not a, a denier of climate change. Far from it. I subscribe to it. I think I think we need to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Uh, there's some really serious things happening, which is only really dawning on people. We had, we had a Tillage conference last week, for example. And Andy Doyle, the, who had just retired in, in the journal, came down. And Andy outlined the challenges facing cereal farmers. A lot of people were very startled. They hadn't quite... You know, the, the acronyms that are being used here and the language that's being used is alien. And a lot of people are only beginning to find out what it's about. And take dairy farming, where banding is coming into place, is in place now, and where there's a threat on the derogation. This You're is, talking about the nitrates. Yes, yes. You know, this, yeah. But this is, challenge, this is very challenging. There is a big... Um, there's a big fight for acres going on at the moment. Uh, dairy farmers who are intensive, highly stocked, are facing the dilemma. They either reduce their cow numbers or they get more land. This is where you're seeing the headlines of 500 euros an acre for con acre. That's a big threat to the cereal growers. A lot of the bigger cereal growers who are the backbone of it depend on con acre. And no, they no, 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 said Todd. No cereal farmer can pay three, four, five hundred, five hundred euros an acre. And I suppose the dairy farmers need to be a bit careful too, don't they? I mean, the, the milk price of 2022, how long will that last for? The indications are it's going to soften a bit this year. And the only thing, the only, the only definite I know in my experience is that commodities are cyclical. You know, the pig one. I don't know if you remember, in college, Seamus Sheehy, I, and I always remember this when I was there, used to have a cobweb drawn to explain the pig cycle. Prices went up, farmers expanded. When farmers expanded, numbers went up, and the price came down. Yeah, you know, and that, that has been the pattern. And um, I, I would be concerned, yes, about those issues. Uh, and and, and uh, 
I think it will have consequences, yes. And, you know, the, at the backbone of Ireland is farming. And I'm a huge advocate of rural Ireland and farming. And never, never go back from that. And I don't want to see a whole, a small load of very large farmers, you know. I think it's in everybody's interest to have community and to have livelihoods in, in rural Ireland. And I don't always agree with the planning. I think the planners are excessive in their limitations on people building in rural Ireland. It's the backbone of schools, of shops, of, of GIA clubs, soccer right. clubs, everything else, you know. I think we're coming very near the end, Jimmy. Uh, you've been around a long time uh, since, what you said, the late 80s as managing director of the company, the early 80s going back uh, to the Brett Group. Uh, have you any intention of throwing in the towel anytime soon? That's <laughs> right. I, I, uh, no, I, 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 I'm not the retiring type at all. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not retired and not retiring, but I, I am in the process of changing my role. To, right. to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying. Uh, look, what I discovered, Michael, a long time ago, was that if, you ha- if you're going to have any level of success. You're going to need need teams, and you're going to need good teams, and you can't just depend on family. You've got to go out into the marketplace and recruit non-family professionals, and that's what we did. And, and my my main emphasis in recent years has been establishing key management teams in our three divisions: okay. our pig farming, our processing, and our animal feed and grain. So I have phenomenal managers running those companies. Okay. And you know I can I can stand back a bit, read the reports, you know, and uh, right. set the agendas and everything else, and that's my role right now, anyway. Well, there are many other issues I'm sure we could talk about, but time, unfortunately, has caught up with us. Uh, my thanks, Jimmy, for sharing your life story uh, with us, and wishing you, your wife Frances, your sons uh, David and John, and the extended members of the group. Continued success in the years to come. Thank you.